You're listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're going to look at uh, an interesting passage today. It's about uh, women. Everybody say women. Woo! Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, starting in verse 26. I want to read the whole context of this passage pertaining to women, because it, it, it talks of, mainly about orderly worship is what I want to point out to you. And so let's look at this passage. We are in a series where we're looking at the book of 1 Corinthians, first and second. So 1 Corinthians chapter 14, starting in verse 26. It says, What shall we say, brothers? When you come together, everyone has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. If anyone speaks a tongue, two, or at most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop, for you can, for you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged." Verse 32, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. And then verse 33, this is a big one for the passage. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. So he says, if, you know, speaking in tongues, one at a time. Let's do it for, so everyone can hear and it's organized prophecy. One at a time. Come on, guys. Let's not just all yell over each other. And then he has some more instructions about orderly worship. He's, it says this. So that's the context. As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak. They must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. It's a hard passage. Let's, let's pray today. God, we do thank you for the Bible. We thank you for the, the word of God that you've given to us. God, as we study this passage, this hard passage, this teaching in the book of Corinthians, God, I, open, I pray that you open our hearts and our minds to receive your truth, your, your understanding of this passage. God, we praise you. We worship you this morning. And everyone screamed? Amen. Amen. This missionary contact that we met uh, said, do not look at a woman. Do not talk to a woman. Do not, under any circumstances, touch or shake hands with a woman. I know this is going to sound mean, but pretend like they don't even exist. There was four of us from the mill. We went to Pakistan. We, were, we had just flown in to uh, the capital city, Karachi, and, in Pakistan. Our missionary contact, this guy that was there, he's, he's, from, uh, he's an American, but he lived in Pakistan as a missionary, picked us up at the airport. So here we are, four dudes uh, from the mill. This is like back in 2005. And he greeted us. He said, hello, you know, how are you guys doing? How was the flight, et cetera, et cetera. And then he kind of reminded us that, you know, you guys have been learning about Pakistan. You, you know that Pakistan and the United States are very different when it comes to men and women and how men and women are treated within society. And so he said, as a reminder, as we're walking through the airport and to our cars, to the taxis, he said, let me just remind you, you know, don't, don't talk to any women. If you pass a woman, don't talk to her. Don't shake her hand. Don't smile. Don't even look at her. Because in that culture, in Pakistani, Middle Eastern, very Muslim culture, if a man was to just approach another woman, it would be a disgrace to her. It would be a disgrace to her family. It would be a disgrace because in that culture, women are more of a property than they are an equal other person. And so you'd be disrespecting her, disrespecting her brother, disrespecting her father or her husband if a man just went and talked 
to another woman in Pakistan. And I remember hearing that. I remember learning about that. Like, oh, when we get to Pakistan, it's going to be different when it comes to men and women. But experiencing it is the weirdest thing. You know, many uh, Muslim women, especially in Pakistan and Middle Eastern countries, will wear full covering of their bodies. Uh, Their hands sometimes will be covered, their whole bodies with these uh, robes. Sometimes all they'll have is an eye slit. And even sometimes the eye slit will have like a veil or some netting over it. And it doesn't matter. Even if it's middle of Pakistan summer, it's like 110 degrees. Women will be totally dressed like that in black. And I mean, I see that as very sad, very limiting of of women's rights because of the Muslim culture in, in the Middle East. And so I just expected that when we were in Pakistan, the four of us dudes, that when we visited Christian churches, because that was kind of the role of this uh, mission, mission trip, to, to visit Pakistani churches, to, to pray, to kind of share our testimony, to see Pakistan. It was a short, short-term mission. I assumed that when we got to a Christian Pakistani church, that it would all be different, that it would be normal, like it is in Mill Sunday School, guys and girls just talking and no big deal. Um, but it wasn't. And I remember being very thrown back by that. I was like, wait... This isn't a Muslim church. This is a born-again, Christian, gospel-teaching, uh, Christian church. In the, we were out in the desert of Pakistan, this small little village. There's probably 30 of us in this little house church. And all the men sat on one side. All the women and, and small children sat on the other side. And we were instructed, if we get up and, and share who we are and give a testimony, just look at the men. Do not look at the women. You'll disrespect them. Do not make eyes at the women. Just look at the men. Just talk to the, to the men. And he said, it's going to sound mean, but just pretend like the women aren't there because you will disrespect them if you're sharing a Christian testimony in this Christian church. You'll, you'll disrespect them. You don't want to disrespect them when you're sharing the good news about Jesus, right? And it's like, yeah, right. And so we did that. We just did as we were instructed. We just talked to the men. And I just remember feeling so, like, weird because I'm like, well, this isn't, this isn't a Muslim church. This is a Christian church. Shouldn't, you know, shouldn't we all be sitting together? And, and our missionary context said, you're right, this is a Christian church. It's, it's not a Muslim church, <clears throat> but it's an, it's an Eastern church, like in the East. This isn't the West. And so because the culture was so, you know, this barrier between men and women, because that was so prevalent in the culture, then uh, you just have to obey those cultural rules or else you will disrespect the women. And so... Um, and still today, I mean, that was 2005, that's still happening, 2009, and it's just the way this other culture is. And so we're going to look at the context of Corinthians and kind of talk about, well, was the context of this ancient Corinthian church more like it is today, New Life Church, 2009, or was it more like it was in Pakistan when I went on a mission trip a few years ago? So that's what we're talking about um, today's, this passage here. Um, the bigger idea of today's passage is, because we, we don't obey this. You know, it says women must remain silent in the churches, and we don't, we don't enforce that. We don't have signs as you come in with like a shush and then like a picture of a woman next to it. We don't do that. We, we do not. Uh, I've, in fact, I'm sure there's churches out there, but I've never, ever visited a church where a woman must remain totally silent in a church, except maybe for that Pakistani church that was, that was very different in that different context. But uh, that's, that's what we're going to talk about today. We are talking about the general context of Corinthians this month. And um, so, before we do that, some announcements. Are you ready for some announcements? The best announcement ever is that fall retreat is coming in a less than like a month, right? September, October, like a month and a half. Woo! Yeah! How many of you are going to fall retreat? Okay, if you're not raising your hand, you should definitely 
think about raising your hand and going to the Millfall Retreat one of the two weekends. Ask somebody that did raise their hand. The Fall Retreat is the event of the year. There's all these flyers to read about it. Listen to someone talk about it. If they've been before, they will tell you that it is awesome. Um, uh, another announcement, if you're new to the Mill Sunday School, you could fill out, there's little cards that say get schooled. Uh, it's a card you could give us your information. Give it to the nice people in the back. We'll put you on an email list. We'll give you a free CD today. And uh, we want to thank you for being here. Uh, another announcement is that uh, in two weeks, not next week, but in two weeks, Sunday school time is going to change because the main service times are changing to Sunday school will start at 10, which is 15 minutes later. Yes! Imagine sleeping in this morning, 15 more minutes, hitting the snooze a couple more times. Wouldn't that be awesome? Yeah, it would be. So that's in two weeks. And uh, finally, if you want to know more about Corinthians, uh, I, I believe I'm going to teach a King's course. King's College is here at New Life Church. I believe it's going to be on Tuesdays. And so if you're wanting to know more, and you're like, man, I, w- I wish there was more about Corinthians. This stuff is awesome. Then uh, you can look into King's College here at New Life Church. You could actually audit the course. Uh, and I guess that means you won't officially receive college credit, but it's, it's very cheap. And so just in case you're interested. So, um, yeah, those are your announcements. Shall we get started? In your skillet, that's the notes that you were handed when you came in, is this first bullet point that just says, what criteria, what criteria tolerate a non-literal interpretation of the Bible? That's meaning for, for today. So, for instance, we're looking at this passage to say, women must remain silent in the church, and we're kind of like, eh, we don't follow that. I mean, really, I mean, we don't follow it, right? I mean, I don't know that we're saying, eh, but I mean, in my head I'm thinking, eh, we don't follow that. There's other passages, like uh, you're, you're not supposed to eat uh, anything made of pigs, like bacon or pork tosh sandwiches. And, and we're like, eh, we don't really follow that. And so what criteria, you know, can, can we just look at the Bible, open it up and say, oh, we, we, we follow this, but not this. We follow that, but not that. I, I kind of want to follow this today, but eh, I don't want to follow that today. What, cri- what seriously, what criterion are there for us to look at a passage and say, eh, we don't do that? I mean, there has to be some criteria. We can't just pick and choose, right, what, what we want to follow in God's word. For instance, there's other, other examples of, oh, like uh, in the Old Testament it says, do not weave two uh, kinds of fabrics together. So if any of you are wearing like polyester cotton, which I think this new sweet jacket is, I would be sinning in the Old Testament. And yet we don't, we don't, uh, we just like, eh, we don't really believe in that anymore. I mean, so what criteria are there to look at a passage and say, oh, we don't really do that? Or even like one, one chapter before, uh, 1 Corinthians 11 says that, uh, this is also about women, that women must, whenever they pray, must cover their head. And we just prayed in the most Sunday school, and I didn't see any woman like pull out a little thing and cover her head. And so we, didn't, we don't do that. Uh, there's things that, that are for the context of the time and that are not for us. Have you ever wondered about that? Like, why, why don't we literally follow every literal thing in the Bible? And, and the answer is, well, there's criterion that we follow that, that says, oh, this, this may not be uh, and the correct interpretation for today in 2009. So we're going to talk about that. And so the, I want you to kind of think about that. I want you to get your, your mind and your brain juices flowing this morning. So think about that question and maybe turn to some people around you. The question is, what criterion tolerates a non-literal interpretation of the Bible. And maybe just, if you're by yourself, that's fine. List some things out and say, okay, if the Bible says, you know, like, do do not uh, weave two fabrics together, and yet we do that, what criterion do we have that gives us the authority to say, 
eh, we don't really do that anymore. What serious criterion are there? So do you understand the question? And by the way, there could be lots of different, if you're talking in a group, there could be lots of different bullet points. There's not just one uh, that's like, oh, it has to be this, you know? So list some things, uh, and then we'll talk about it. We'll pass the mics, and we'll talk about it. So be ready to share with the whole group if you want. So you got it? What criterion tolerate a non-literal interpretation of the Bible? Ready, get set, chit-chat. <clears throat> All right, let me give you just 60 more seconds to quickly wrap up. 60 seconds. Okay, what uh, some of you are still talking. Let's talk as a, as a big Sunday school class. There's uh, some dudes with some microphones. So get, get their attention. Uh, stand up so everyone can hear us. And, and just kind of say, oh, my table talked about this or, or that. Sound good? Okay, over here first. Yes, sir. It's on. We got you. Is it? Yeah, we got I, I can hear you. Can you guys hear him? <laughs> okay. All right, we, uh, <clears throat> maybe you could take, like, what's morally right and correct uh-huh. and go with those. Um, but then again, I guess you could argue that, you know, what's morally right and correct is what's in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And maybe, like, in 500 B.C., you know, wearing cotton and polyester all at the same time was like, <gasps> you know, but. Right. So, uh, so maybe, maybe maybe the way I would word is that follow the letter of the law or follow the the heart of the law, not the letter of the law, the intent of the law. I mean, even Jesus, you know, Jesus broke some Old Testament commandments. He didn't obey the Sabbath. And so even Jesus didn't take literally the Old Testament commandments and he, he followed the, le- the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. Yeah, thanks, Art. That's good. Yes, sir, Matthew. This is actually kind of interesting because I was talking with my uh, dad about this a couple of days ago. But... Uh, what we came to is that you can't necessarily read 
what was written, but you also have to read why it was written. Like, yeah. for example, they weren't allowed to eat pork because they didn't know how to prepare the pork without getting didn't have sick from it. back then. Imagine eating, like, three-day-old bacon that had been sitting out. Mmm. And, and, like, yeah, stuff yeah. like that would make you extremely sick. And then the same thing for, like, uh, there's a law in Leviticus about eating grasshoppers. But then there's other things that you can take out of it, like uh, the weaving two kinds of fabric together that this was more of a representation of God's people, that mm-hmm. God was so pure that he wanted his purity to be reflected in his people. And by only weaving one type of fabric together, that was one of the ways that they showed his purity to the outside world, even through their clothing. And then for things like, uh, um, there's another passage in Corinthians, I, I, I think, I want to say it's in like Corinthians 7, where uh, um, Paul himself is talking about one of the... Um, Laws that came from Leviticus in the do, to, do not muzzle an oxen while it is treading the grain. And Paul uses that as like a metaphor to mean that uh, um, people who preach the gospel are, should also be able to gain their living from the gospel. That they shouldn't feel bad about accepting money for preaching the gospel and things like that. So I suppose that's another way that you can take some of the literal laws is that you can turn them around and use them as metaphors that do apply to today and do apply to our lives. Yeah, so I'm hearing you say um, the context of the passage must follow the, another, the bigger context of what's going on in yeah. that. That's good. Thank you, Matthew. Let's, let's move on with... Um, thank you, too, for sharing. Um, I, I have down... The, this, by the way, are the, potentially the answers we're going to talk about today. The context of the passage. Does the context, in your notes, there's three points. Context of the passage, context of Corinthians, and something called biblical antecedent. And so we're going to talk about these three pretty quickly. And then we have a guest speaker this morning. It's going to be awesome. Um, and so uh, the context of the passage. Paul is talking about the context. In the context of this passage, turn to it and look at it. First Corinthians 14 says... Uh, it follows in verse 33 that women must remain silent in the churches. And that's in a greater context of Paul talking about the ekklesia, which is this Greek word for the gathering. When you gather together, when a bunch of you are gathered together, there needs to be order. And he, he begins by saying, if you're speaking in tongues, one at a time, you know, or else it just sounds like a bunch of people speaking in tongues, literally. This is nonsense. If you're prophesying, one at a time, and then consider what is being said. And then he says, women must remain silent in the church. And so what I see in this passage is, in the context of this passage, is more about orderly worship than it is equality of women. The context of this passage is about how worship um, is, or how, when you gather together, how it is supposed to be orderly. And I think there's there's a verse that adds a piece that I think is very important to understand why Paul would say women must remain silent in the church. And it says, if they want to inquire about something, if they have a question to ask, they should ask their own husbands at home. And, and then um, what I see in there is that we have to understand that the con- there was, maybe there was something going on in Corinthians where people were just constantly raising their hands. I got a question. I got a question. And then it's like, no, ask your husbands at home. That, that's... Potentially, I'm going to give an analogy in a second, and I, I, I'll, I'll say it again. I don't want to offend you with this analogy, but, <clears throat> but ask, ask silly questions at home so that we can continue on with this main teaching. And I'm going to talk about that because that may be offensive. But look at this next point, the context of Corinthians. So hold that 
We'll come back to that idea. So the, the next point is, what was going on in the context of Corinthians? And like we've said, I've probably said this now like 10 times in this month as, as, we, as we've studied this book of the Bible. And if I say it now, it's, it always comes as like a little bit of a shock the first time you hear it. But the statement is, the Bible's not written to us, it's written for us. <laughs> and so, the context of Corinthians, this is a letter. This is literally a letter from Paul, this missionary apostle, to some house churches meeting in Corinth, say around 60-something A.D. Is it written to us, New Life Church, Mill Sunday School, 2009-er, August 30th? No. It's written to this Corinthian church, this ancient Corinthian church. So we have to understand what was going on in that context. And if you look at the context of ancient Corinth, in the non-Christian world, this pagan world, we had all kinds of pagan worship, and you went into a temple, and then you just kind of did anything you want in order to worship that god. There was ex- just this idea of getting really ecstatic and really excited and screaming and yelling was like, oh, they must be really spiritual because they're screaming and yelling and getting really excited. And they must be more spiritual than this guy just kind of keeping quiet. And so maybe this guy would want to show off, and he'd start screaming and yelling, you know, and, and in this pagan temple. And so those people in Corinth hear the message of Paul and then get saved and come to church, what they know about church is that, oh, when you gather and you worship, you just get excited and worked up and start screaming and go crazy. And the more disorderly, the more spiritual. And Paul is saying, no, our God is a God of order. And think about it this way. There was no microphones back then. And so if, if I was speaking to you right now and there was no microphone, uh, microphones won't be invented until like 1800s, I think, something like that. Or even like a, like a megaphone. You know, if there's megaphones, weren't even be invented until the 1600s. You know, like a big tube for speaking to you. So if I was talking with no mic, it'd be really hard to hear me, those of you in the back, right? And so if there was people up here like moving around or talking, it would be really hard to hear. And so Paul is saying, when, when you gather together, in this Greek word, ekklesia, when you gather, there needs to be order. If someone is, is giving a word or, or teaching, then one at a time. Back then, it, se- it seems like in the, in the context of Corinth that there was people trying to compete for airtime and trying to outdo each other. Like, you know, someone might start saying, I believe that the, the Lord is telling us, and then someone else is like, I really believe that the Lord is telling And then it's like another person chimes in, and, just, and then someone else starts speaking in tongues. And it's just random just gibberish for like an hour, two hours, how many hours their service was, and then everybody packs up, goes to Red Robin, and, and talks about how awesome church was. It's like, no, that wasn't awesome. It's just a bunch of people screaming and yelling, and I have no idea what was going on. That, I mean, that's what they did when they, when they gathered, this Greek word ekklesia. And so Paul's saying, no, one at a time, with order. And then he tells the women, Please stay quiet. If you have a question, ask your husbands at home. And here's the analogy I want to give. And this, I'm comparing an uneducated, I think about it this way, that women in the ancient world were not educated at all. Imagine it. Like only men were educated in that time. In fact, uh, I heard a statement, and I still, it's, it's hard to believe, but it, it said that the first society in all of recorded history to ever educate both men and women, uh, boys and girls, uh, from childhood to adulthood in the society. For, so, I mean, surely there was educated women uh, in, in the, before this time that I'm going to mention, but they were either homeschooled or uh, they learned on their own or went to a private girls' school. The first society ever to educate both men and women in all of recorded history is the Puritans in the 1600s. And so... 
Think about all the time before 1600s, and women just weren't normally as society, you know, as a rural society, educated. And so it's not like, oh, women weren't as educated, they didn't have a sixth grade education. No, they didn't have a sixth grade, they didn't have a third grade, they didn't even have a first grade education. What they knew was just picked up around the house and they learned how to do chores. And that's just the way it was. Does everybody see that? So this analogy, so the analogy would be that, let's say the Mill Sunday School was like the Mill and like New Life Kids first graders. Like that's who was in here. New Life Church first graders and the Mill uh, Sunday School. And so we're talking, we're reading about the Bible, and then this kid raises his hand. He's like, wait, I, I got a question. I got a question. Uh, what page are we on? And you're like, no, just settle down. Uh, every Bible's different. We don't have time to explain that. Um, let's just keep going. You know, ask, ask somebody else. Um, and, then, and then we keep talking about Corinthians, and maybe last week we were talking about, you know, the temple of Aphrodite and how you worshipped her. And, and this kid's like raising his hand. Oh, I've got a question, teacher, please. It's like, yes, what? What's a prostitute? <laughs> you're like, uh, can you ask your mom and dad at home? We, we got to go on with the lesson here. Uh, because this is the Mill Sunday School, and that's what we do. And so it's like this analogy of, of potentially what may, be, may have been happening, I, I see in this context, is that a totally uneducated woman, and this is offensive because women today can vote, can serve in the military, are CEOs of companies, are totally equal, are totally educated. In many ways, women are much smarter than men. Ask my wife. She's really smart. And, um, and so that, that is not at all like it was back in the day in this ancient world. And so women potentially were asking very, very immature questions because they had no context of being educated ever. And, and Paul's saying, listen, for the sake of the ecclesia, when we gather, let's, let's have this high teaching and what the gospel is. And if you have a question, it's probably an important question, but don't ask it in church. Ask your husbands at home and he'll explain it to you because your husband probably knows and, and, and you being uneducated, and it's offensive to even hear this analogy because it is so unlike the culture for today. But you see where I'm going with it? Okay. And so that's what I see. So the context of, in review, context of the passage says, oh, the passage is more about keeping order in a gathering than it is men and women's roles. The context of Corinthians, the who it was written to, is um, more about... Uh, an orderly worship in this ancient world where women were uneducated and potentially even sat, you know, in an Eastern world, the, the men would sit on one side, the, the women would sit on the other side. So potentially, I imagine like a woman like asking her husband a question like a cross mill Sunday school. What, what's he talking about? What page are we on? And Paul's saying, for, for, for the importance of order in the church so that everyone knows what's going on and we're all on the same page, Women, be, be quiet here, and, but, but you are important. Um, ask your husbands at home those questions. And, and then this last verse says, in the context, it says, verse 35, if you want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. And then it says this, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. And I think he's just stating, back then, I think he's just stating the obvious, that, that somehow an uneducated woman would, would somehow shame the church. And is that at all true today? You know, if, if, if one of you women uh, raised your hand and had something to say back when we were discussing, you know, what criteria do we have uh, to, to tolerate a non-literal interpretation, would Sunday school be shamed by one of you nice women answering that question out loud with a mic? Not at all. 
Not at all, right? And so Paul, I think, is just stating, potentially stating the obvious in his society, in his culture, it's disgraceful for a woman to speak. Mm-hmm. And potentially, you know, in Pakistan, if a woman was to stand up and like take off her mask or her, uh, whatever it's called, burqa, in the context of a Christian church and start teaching, that in that context, in that ancient world, it would have disgraced the whole church for that, for that to happen. And so I think Paul's just stating the obvious here is how I interpret that. And so finally, um, can we, so looking at this bigger question of can we just look at a passage and say, eh, we don't really do that. Uh, based on the context and based upon the culture, I think we can, but I think there should be something even more. And that's this, this last piece in your notes that says biblical antecedent. And that's a big word, and we could use big words because this is the Mill Sunday School, right? Yeah. Right. And uh, antecedent means uh, something that's precursory, something that's pre-existing proof. And so if we're saying, here's, if, if the Bible says women should remain silent in the church, and we at New Life Church uh, Colorado Springs, 2009, we're saying, oh, that was for an ancient time, but not for now because of context and because of cultural understandings. We also potentially may need a biblical antecedent, some pre-existing proof in the Bible where we ask the question, is there anywhere in the Bible where a woman is a leader, where a woman is speaking uh, in a church, is there anywhere where a woman may have authority in the Bible? Can we look at any passage is there any passage anywhere in the Bible where a woman speaks or has authority or is a leader? Is there? Yes. There's a bunch. I'm going to give you a few examples. But I think we, this bigger idea on the back of your skillet is this quote from D.L. Moody, who was like an 1800s uh, evangelist like Billy Graham uh, of his day in the 1800s. And he said, uh, the quote is something like, I don't have it with me, do I? No, I don't have it. What does it say? Someone read it. What does it say? There's no better book to defend the Bible than the Bible itself. Thank you. And so think about that. If the Bible really is the Word of God, if the Bible really is truth on this earth that we, ha- we have to understand what is right and what is wrong, then we should be able to, if, if we're saying that we don't follow this passage, women must remain silent in the churches, then there should be some other passage in the Bible where maybe a woman is speaking, where maybe a woman does have a leadership role. And so here are some of the examples that I found. Are you ready? I'm going to go over these very quickly. Uh, but in the Old Testament, in the book of Judges, yeah. there was a chick named Deborah. She was the leader of Israel. She was a judge, and she was a prophet. Pretty cool. In the Old Testament, we also have a girl named Huldah. In Second Kings, she's referred to as a prophet. In Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we have Moses' sister, who is considered a leader over Israel. Do you know her name? Miriam. And then in the New Testament... We have Mary, that the first person that Jesus sees when he rises from the dead and this good news is proclaimed that Jesus is not dead, is a woman. And Jesus says, go, teach, tell, preach to the disciples what you've seen, that I'm alive. And, and, and so it's a woman that goes and teaches the other disciples. Pretty sweet, huh, girls? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, in uh, Romans 16:3. This girl named Prisca is, is uh, Paul says, greet Prisca, a fellow worker. And so if you're a worker uh, in Christ and uh, maybe a fellow missionary, can you speak? Maybe she just used sign language. I don't know. 
Just kidding. I mean, she had to have been speaking a little bit. Uh, Amphibia in uh, Philemon, uh, verse 2. She is one of the people to whom the letter is addressed in this church. So Paul writes a letter to Philemon and and to Amphibia and to this other dude. And he says, uh, you know, he just addresses the letter. A book of the Bible is addressed to this chick. And so she must have had some sort of leadership role, a representative of that church. Furthermore, uh, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, 111, excuse me, Paul says, uh, Paul refers to a group of you from Chloe's household. So there's this whole church named after Chloe. That's a girl's name in the Greek. It's clear because they use uh, masculine and feminine words. Uh, it's clear that Paul is saying, there's a group of you from Chloe's household. So she's like either the leader or the, or the house owner where this church meets. Obviously, she has a pretty big role. Furthermore, uh, Romans 16, 1, uh, Paul says, I commend to you Phoebe, and then says, a deacon. Phoebe, this chick, is a deacon. And she's a deacon of Centria, which is just like six miles, like the suburbs of Corinth. And you might think, oh wait, isn't there a passage in 1 Timothy 3 where Paul says a deacon must be a husband, but one wife, and manage his own children and household well? So 1 Timothy says a deacon must be a husband. And then he says, well, in another book, he says, I commend to you Phoebe, a deacon. It says de- clearly in the Greek. That's uh, Romans 16.1. Uh, Phoebe, a deacon. And so here's this chick as a deacon. And a deacon is a role of leadership in the church. And then in Corinth, there's Priscilla and Aquila, this husband and wife team. In the book of Acts, it refers to Paul uh, living with them because they are fellow tent makers. And it says that Priscilla and Aquila, for some reason, Priscilla's name is always first, which I think is kind of cool. Because, well, I mean, if women were, really were nothing back then, why would the, why would the women's name be before the man's? I don't know. I don't, I, because they, they weren't, there were women who were serving in leadership roles in the ancient early church. Uh, Acts chapter 18 says that Priscilla and Aquila heard Apollos, this great apostle, speaking in the synagogue. And he was speaking and doing a good job, but he could have done better. So Priscilla and Aquila, the the scripture says that they, man and wife, took Apollos into their home and they taught him uh, a better way, uh, a more adequate understanding of the word. And then in 1 Corinthians 11.5, I referred to this verse, it says, when you're gathering together, and, and, of course, prophecy is, you know, according to Paul, should be used for the betterment of the whole church. And it says, when a woman prays or prophesies, she must cover her head, right? So it says that. And so you're thinking, wait, 1 Corinthians 11.5 says, when a woman prays or prophesies, she must cover her head. It's like she's doing that out loud. Obviously, a prophecy is supposed to be for everyone in the ecclesia, and that's the context of chapter 11. So why does Paul say, cover your head when you prophesy or pray, and then says, woman must remain silent in the church? I think it has more to do with potentially asking questions that are immature and below where they were at in the teaching than it was just women must be quiet at all times in the church. Because here's, exi- here's evidence that a woman was praying and prophesying in the church. Because Paul says, when you do it, cover your head. Um, furthermore, one last verse. And this is Galatians three twenty six through 28. And uh, this passage encourages me because it, it says that we're all equal before Christ. So it's Galatians 3. This is a writing, a letter of Paul. He says that you all are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For you are all baptized into Christ. 
You have clothed, clothed yourself with Christ. And then this big verse. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. And in this one, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And so with that understanding, um, I think I am very proud to, to be at a church where women are given equality, where there's uh, women uh, pastors on staff, women pastors, and there's, uh, for instance, we, we now have on our executive team over New Life Church, Becky Grothy, who's on the executive team. She has a leadership role at the church. And, um, and I, I see in Scripture, through biblical antecedents, that in the ancient times, in this ancient world, there were also women who were very strong leaders in the church. And so, um, so I want to introduce you, our guest speaker for the rest of Mill Sunday School. Her name is Noelle Goodland. She is really cool. Do you know Noelle? She is, she has been the women's pastor at the mill uh, since 2005. And uh, if you girls know her, you know that she is really godly, really faithful, uh, a true women's pastor. And uh, she has her master's in counseling, which is pretty cool. So she's very pastoral, very counseling, uh, very merciful and cool. And so would you please welcome Noelle Goodland. Thank, thank you, Joe. Um, before I share, I'm just going to share a little bit out of my personal experience of being a woman in, in ministry. But before I do that, I don't know how many of you guys in here know that yesterday was Joe Kirkendall's birthday. <laughs> so I want to take just a second and sing happy birthday to him now. Before we sing... I need everyone to sing because what's about to come out of my mouth is not very pretty. So I don't want to be up here singing happy birthday by myself while everyone watches me. Joe, you want to come stand up here? How old are you, Joe? How old are you, Joe? I'm 31. 31. All right. <laughs> All right. So on the count of three, we're going to sing happy birthday, okay? One, two, three. Happy Welcome. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I was thinking actually while I was listening to Joe talk, I was reminded of I had a very recent uh, illustration of the idea of disruption in like a group study, and I want to share the story because I feel like it's really applicable and it's also kind of funny. Um, a few weeks ago, uh, maybe a month ago now, there was a day for women event here at the church, and there was uh, I was leading one of like the breakout workshop things. And so I had a room of about 70 women, and I kind of shared for a few minutes, and then I was going to have them break up into groups, and they were supposed to kind of share their own experience about what we had been talking about throughout the course of the day and things like that. And this really sweet, I ended up making friends with her by the end of the day, this really sweet Asian woman just yells out in the middle of, I mean, everyone heard her. She yells out, these groups are gossip groups, like really loud and this like silence just kind of fell over the room and I I mean I am still relatively new there are lots of circumstances I encounter on a regular basis that I have never encountered before so when she yelled this out I like 
panicked. I was like, oh my gosh, what do I do? Because all these women are like staring at me. And she didn't say it just once. She said it three times in a very loud voice. And so I was like, what do I do? So, so I think that's like a very practical illustration of how disruptive that can be and how it kind of rattled everyone and kind of threw the whole thing off course. Um, but I just wanted to share a few minutes just as a woman in ministry, a little bit about my own experience, and then just some big ideas that I think I've learned along the way, if I can get on this stool without falling off. Um, and I think probably uh, it's helpful, too, to think through, because all of us, if we were to go around the room, we would all have maybe a slightly different, somewhat slightly different perspective on this issue, in part because of where we grew up and what type of church we went to if we grew up in a church. Um, so I wanted to give you a brief little background of what I grew up in. I grew up in a family where my mom was a really gifted musician, and every church that we were involved in, she was, she never had the title of worship pastor, but that's essentially what she did. She was involved in leadership in the worship department, organizing services, things like that. Um, and it was, I grew up as a child seeing it be, it was a very challenging experience for her. And some of that could have been because of just, some things in her own life that she needed to work through. But as a child, I remember watching her thinking, man, this seems like it's a really hard thing to be a woman in a leadership position in a church because um, she, she encountered a lot of conflict. Uh, so that was one experience I had as a child that sort of shaped my view of women in ministry. The second was um, every summer and every Christmas, we would go to my grandma's house in Iowa my grandma lived on a farm, and so often my brother and I would go and we'd stay longer than um, the, my parents would. We'd stay maybe a month or something. And my grandma went to a Methodist church, and the head pastor of the Methodist church was a woman, but she was a lesbian. And she had a partner who served in the church with her. And so that was very confusing to me as a child as well. And my poor parents, I think by the time when I was finally old enough to kind of uh, make connect the dots that something seemed a little bit different uh, driving home one day from church and asking my parents about it. I, I don't even remember how they answered me, honestly. But that was my second kind of experience of seeing women in ministry. And, um, and so that was interesting. And then my third was probably what is most people's experience here if you grew up in a church, and that is I went to churches that were very traditional um, where, you know, male pastors and women had leadership roles, but they weren't necessarily, they didn't carry the title of pastor, and they didn't necessarily have, like, a key role in preaching or teaching. Um, so that was kind of my third experience. None of those were necessarily bad experiences or scarring experiences for me. That just was my background, to give you a little idea of what I've come from. Um, and so when I got to college, I went to Wheaton College, for those of you who are familiar with Wheaton. And I took a theology class. And, uh, one, and in that class, we read a book on biblical feminism, which was shocking to me. I had never heard the term before. And I was like, huh, this is an interesting idea. Biblical feminism. People were getting so riled up. I mean, I remember every class, it was like these heated debates. People saying really hurtful things to each other. And I just remember thinking, this is not, this has not been my experience, nor do I want this to be my experience. This seems like something that is not appealing, nor is it very, nothing about this has the fruit of the Spirit in it <laughs> at all that I can tell. Um, 
And so, so those are some things that kind of shaped my experience. Then I came to Colorado Springs and I came to New Life and I got hired on at the mill. And to be honest, as a woman, I've never felt, um, like I've, I've not had an opportunity to lead or to be who I am in working at the mill. And I think part of that is that there's an incredible company of men, if you will, um, at the mill, Aaron, Joe, um, and even people who don't work at the mill, like my dad and my husband, who have always been very encouraging to me of using my strengths, using my gifts, stepping out in who God has created me to be and leading out of that. And so my experience, even though I have all of these different things in my background that kind of shaped or placed questions, my experience has never been one where I felt hurt or rejected or denied opportunities to serve. And I think that's a wonderful thing. I don't know that that's, in fact, I know for sure that's not the case for every woman. And I've had lots of conversations with with women, even here at New Life, where they felt at different times in New Life's past where they haven't had an opportunity to share or the door has been closed because they were a woman. A few years ago, uh, a guy came to church and he spoke on Sunday morning and it was a talk that was very, um, intended to be very empowering toward women. And um, there was this one point where his sermon kind of built and he kind of issued what I would call like a, it wasn't a rally cry, but it was definitely a point that was designed to garner some support or something. And this like all around the sanctuary, I don't know if you got anyone who was here, but especially from middle-aged women, there was this like guttural cry for like, freedom almost. I I don't know exactly how to describe it. I personally was a little bit disturbed by it. Um, not because of the idea that empowering women is bad. Obviously, I feel very empowered and love the opportunity I have to serve. But because of what I felt like it was coming from within the women that were there, and it reminded me of what I would picture in my mind of like in the 60s or the 70s, like with bra burning and, and weird things like that. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going somewhere with this, I promise. Um, and so, so all of that, the reason why I bring that up and the reason why I say that is that I think there's, just as in Corinthians, we have to look at culture and things there. Here today, we have to look at and sift through what is our culture telling us about the roles of men and women and what does the Bible have to say? And I think the, it, it's just important for us to consider what is the difference between secular feminism as we see it played out in our culture today versus how it's supposed to be reflected in the church? Because and I I'm, I'm, have nothing, like with the beginnings of feminism, I think there were some great things that happened with that. Originally, feminism started out of desire to give women the right to vote, to have a place in our society where their voices were being heard, and that's a really good thing. But I think over the last few years, 10 or 15 years, it's metamorphosed a little bit into something that's very, can be very disrespectful toward men. And this is what I, if I could communicate one thing most clearly today, it would be this. It's that men and women both are equal, valuable, and needed in the body of Christ. We can't have women's rights within the church, if you will, at the expense of men. It doesn't work that way. 
We need both working together. We need men. I love the fact that there are so many amazing, godly men leading at the mill and leading at new life. I love it. I love that I spend the majority of my days with amazing, godly women who have huge potential and great leadership giftings and skills. I love it. But it's the two of them working together, respecting and honoring each other that makes it work. (laughs) In my opinion, this is an issue that starts to go awry when it becomes a question of rights. And this is why. Because if we're looking for a faith or a religion, I don't, I don't love that word, but that is about our rights, then Christianity is the wrong place to go. Because Christianity is all about laying down your rights, right? If there was anyone who set the example for the, us better than this, it's Jesus. Jesus had the most rights, if you will, of any human being who walked on earth. And yet he chose to lay his life down for us. And that is what the Bible calls us to. It says uh, in one part of scripture, it says, submit yourself one to another out of reverence for Christ. So the Bible teaches humility and a laying down of our, rather than a demanding or a pressing or a pushing, it's a laying down, it's a serving, it's a humility. So I have four minutes and in four minutes I want to give you three questions, not You can write them down if you want to, but these are questions that I ask myself on a regular basis um, that I think are helpful, and these are not gender-specific questions. They're general questions. The first question is, um, what is my role in the body of Christ? How am I going to serve and make a difference in, in the kingdom of God? Because it's not ultimately about me. It's about him. And we need everyone doing their part. I was going to share um, the Afghanistan team. Is there anyone in here from, that went on the Afghanistan trip this summer? No. Um, they got back just a few weeks ago, and I was sitting down with Jessa. She was the team leader for that. And this complements Joe's story that he told about Pakistan at the beginning very well. And that she described to me kind of what her experience was like as a woman being in a, in a culture like that. And how they go into a restaurant, and there was a specific curtained off room where the girls would go to sit and eat and the men on the team could go and join them there if they wanted to but the girls were not welcome out in the main part of the restaurant and then she described how there they call it's a term they use they call western women a third gender that it's men and women afghanistan men and afghanistan or western women sorry afghanistan men and western men are equal then, lower than Afghanistan men and Western men are Western women. <laughs> and then even lower than that are Afghanistan women. And she was just kind of sharing from her experience as a woman what that was like to be in a culture like that for six weeks. They were there for six weeks. And as she was telling me about that, my heart just um, broke for her, but also for the women there to think about all the ways in which they have dreams and visions and strengths and gifts and sensitivities and things that would be such a huge compliment to the men that, they're, that they live their lives with and go to church with and work with. But there's, because of this, Afghanistan women are third on the totem pole, if you will, that the, 
that they're missing out. They're missing out on this incredible reservoir of strength and ideas and understanding and depth. So it's important for us to value both because both are needed in the body of Christ. So first is what is my role? Second, what are my giftings and what are my motivations in using them? Sometimes I think we see a particular role and we just want to do that role because it seems significant to us or has prestige or power, but that's not the right motivation. So to really ask and discern, what, is my, what am I gifted in that I can bring? Because when we're serving in the areas where we're gifted, that's where we really shine and come alive. And then the third is, am I operating out of a place of respect and appreciation? This goes for both men and women. Like I said earlier, I've heard stories of women who have felt like the door was closed on them because they were women. And I would say that sometimes that is true. But in 90 to 95% of the stories that I hear, I think it has more to do with their approach than it has to do with their gender. And I want to give you an example of this. How many of you guys know Big Bill? He's sitting right up here. Bill, raise, raise your hand. Okay, Bill sits uh, at the front row every Friday night of the mill. Now imagine, this is an example of this, how sometimes we can assume some things because, well, it's because I'm a woman or it's because of whatever, but maybe it has to do with our approach. Imagine if Big Bill was to go up to Aaron Friday night after Aaron finished talking, and he said something along the lines of, you know, I'm, I'm getting tired of sitting on the front row and never having an opportunity to share my thoughts. I have a lot to say, and I'm wondering, when are you going to invite me to speak at the mill? Now, do you think Aaron's going to be inclined to give Bill an opportunity to speak at the mill if he's approached that way? Probably not. And it's not because Bill's a man. It's not because he's an ex-football player. It's not because he's tall. It's not because he can carry 40 tables at a time when he's doing setup. I mean, None of those things. It's because his approach. So I think it's helpful for us to figure out, am I walking in what I talked about earlier? Am I walking in a posture? Is my heart in a posture of a place of really respecting and appreciating the people around me, male and female, seeing the value and the equality and appreciating the uniqueness of each? Does that make sense? Okay. I think that's all I have to say. And it's 1046. So let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity that we have to share about some of these things. Lord, to talk about and to understand and to come to a place of better and deeper awareness of how we're supposed to work together as men and women. And what that looks like within the church. Father, I pray that we would be a group of people who love and honor and serve each other. I pray that we would be a group of people who respect each other. And Father, I just thank you for Joe. I thank you for his life. And as he just celebrated another year, I thank you that he is so knowledgeable about these things, that he can teach us and lead us from a theological perspective and do such a great job. And I pray that you would bless and encourage him and Erica over this next year, that you would uh, fill their lives with incredible and wonderful things, and that you would help them to grow deeper in their walk with you. We love you, God. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, let's thank Noel.
All right, everybody, uh, you're dismissed. Slap some high fives. Ask somebody where they're sitting over at the big building, and we'll see you next week. Peace.